Before we begin, I wanted to add a short commentary at the beginning of this week's interview. So, a few months ago, one of our listeners brought to my attention inclined bed therapy. My immediate reaction was one of dismissal, even though I should know better by now, since I reacted the same way when grounding or earthing was brought to my attention, and it gave me incredible results. I put it on the side until the same listener brought it to my attention again. At that point, I went to the website for inclined bed therapy and started looking at the data and the testimonials. It looked too good to be true. In fact, I conducted the interview with low expectations, but I kept an open mind. I became so excited at the end of the interview that I adjusted my bed. Now, I wish I had known this years ago. I've included my testimonial at the end of the interview. If you know me by now, I don't give an opinion or I don't comment until I try something. And I did try it. Let me just say that among many other aspects of improvement, one is a sense of well-being. This is probably one of the most important health-related interviews you will hear in a long time. And you'll also know why the knowledge is under attack. Why? Because it's free. Enjoy. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. You've heard me say that oftentimes the simplest strategies pay great dividends. Getting sensible sun exposure and grounding to the earth are two examples. But what if I told you that sleeping on an incline is another? Have you ever wondered who told us that laying flat is the correct way to sleep? Who decided this was correct and why are we accepting this unqualified flatbed wisdom? I've never thought about it before, have you? I sleep flat because my parents left flat and their parents before them, I guess. Well, few have heard of it, and sleeping on a horizontal surface is a well-established norm. Raising the head of your bed six to eight inches so that you're sleeping on a five-degree incline may have a number of benefits, including improving blood circulation, boosting metabolism, improving lymphatic drainage from the brain, improving immune system function, improving respiratory function, easing symptoms associated with Alzheimer's, diabetes, glaucoma, migraines, multiple sclerosis, sleep apnea, acid reflux, edema, varicose veins, and more. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. For more than two decades, Andrew Fletcher has worked tirelessly, selflessly, and self-funded to develop inclined bed therapy. He has been helping people around the world regain control of their health by simply advising them to raise their beds and the head end to a five-degree angle. This is based on his new understanding of the role that gravity plays in driving our circulation. Andrew, a British mechanical engineer, said to have, quote-unquote, an avid interest in how things work. 
He stumbled upon the theory by studying the circulatory, circulatory system of plants. And to tell us more, Andrew K. K. Fletcher joins us directly from Panton, Devon, UK. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. Um, thank you for having me on the show. I'm very well. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, enlightening a few people on the uh, the folly of bed rest. And, this um, is... Hopefully people enjoy what they're about to hear. I was mentioning to you before we started that I get excited sometimes because doing what I do sometimes, I get some of our listeners, Debbie Simons, by the way. Hi, Debbie, you refer me to Andrew. And sometimes I get information and I read it first and I think, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. But then I start reading and it all makes sense. And I'm even buying some of the rices for my bed, and we'll discuss that later. But before we started, I mentioned to you that years ago, I think it was in the uh, a museum in, in, in Boston, Queen Hetafiris, I believe it was the name. That's the bed, yes. Right? She was uh, around 2575 to 2528 before Christ. And I saw that the bed was inclined, and I thought, you know, maybe whoever built it, built it wrong. But it never occurred to me that that could have been the way the ancient ones slept. Is this something you have rediscovered, Andrew? Yes, it is. Uh, it was a, f a fascinating adventure. Um, I was delighted when I, uh, I uh, asked the curator at the same museum in Boston to measure one of the beds and, and found that it was a five-degree angle. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite fascinating, but it, it's not just the ancient Egyptians. There are various other um, images on the internet um, which are found in Constantinople, ancient Constantinople. There's an entire hospital ward with all the beds inclined, and these people were renowned for their success in health. Um, there's a, a native a picture of some natives in a tent in a mud hut. Sorry, a mud hut doing a, a successful C-section witnessed by one of our UK doctors. And um, the bed is inclined, and in the document it states that the bed is inclined. Uh, why? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an amazing adventure. Um, but if we study animals, um, first of all, you know, in the zoos where they've been conditioned to lie on flat surfaces, we're not going to see the true picture. But if we look at animals in the wild, uh, or indeed um, cattle and sheep in a field, uh, if there's a hillside there, uh, you'll see them all opting for the incline. And, um, you know, I've seen entire flocks of sheep and entire herds of cattle all pointing uphill with the heads. Now, I read a little bit of your bio. Taking me back to your childhood, because you obviously, I was laughing because you seem, I seem to remind myself that you were like me a little bit. Yeah, I was the type of student that was never happy with some of the answers, and I was kind of problematic in that sense, because I would say, you know what, you're just telling me to believe this, but this doesn't make sense. Now, how was yes. your childhood, and how did you evolve into finding this? Oh, that, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I was a problem child um, at school. I, you know, I, well, I was a bit of a scientist as well. Um, I had my first microscope when I was a youngster. Uh, as many of us did. Um, and I used to travel to um, GC Hogs in Birmingham, which was a fair old jaunt on the on the train. 
uh, and then a long walk. And we used to buy chemicals there for making all sorts of things, including, including I might say, bonds uh, <laughs> as a youngster. You know, so I understood a fair amount of chemistry and a fair amount of biology. But when someone says something and I don't understand it, I'm the sort of person that says that don't make sense. I don't understand it. And then when you say that to a teacher, you become that problem kid in the classroom, as you were, Mel. Yep. Yeah, so you get brushed brushed aside and, you know, made to look a little bit foolish at times. Um, but anyway, the, the story began way, way back after my childhood. <laughs> I'm 61 years young now. Um, I wanted to understand how water reached the top of a tree. Um, I wanted to understand, first of all, what they were doing with the salts, because on irrigated land, um, where there's high evaporation, such as deserts, um, the, the land gets poisoned. So there's a build of crust, there's a crust buildup on the land, um, which causes the irrigation uh, to move elsewhere because the land becomes infertile. But what I noticed in the programs that I was watching was there were trees present and some of these trees were a couple hundred years old. So they didn't have any problem with the salt, and there were plants growing around these trees. So the, the puzzle was that the trees appeared to have lifted the salt, and indeed they lift heavy metals as well from the soil. So I wanted to know, and this is the angle I approached it from, I wanted to understand how they were using the salts. So uh, I got, got hold of a GCSE biology book from D.G. McCain, and it, it was a book that I remember reading at school as well. And I read all about water transporting trees. And I just fell about the floor laughing. I mean, osmosis, water can somehow attract water up to the top of, of a giant Californian redwood. It doesn't quite cut it for an engineer. Uh, capillary action, the tree is a giant sponge. So it soaks water up to the top of the tree. Again, that's a non-starter. Root pressure. The roots somehow squeeze water out the top of a tree. Ridiculous. By, by the way, almost 400 feet, that is, for the, red, yes. the redwoods. Yes. And the, the new kid on the block, or relatively new kid on the block, is the cohesion tension theory, which states that as one molecule leaves the leaf, it pulls up an entire column of water uh, 400, meter, uh, 400 feet into the air. And that, that again is wholly inadequate explanation for fluid transporting trees. So I said, okay, then, if you don't believe any of this, which I didn't, what really happens? So I, I threw away all of the uh, the explanations, which indeed the, the author, D.G. McKean, disagreed with. Um, and I think it was his honesty and his integrity in writing the book uh, that caused me to question, uh, the, you know, everything that was in the book. And... Um, it took me 20 minutes to solve the problem. And the problem as I saw it was that the tree stood vertical, so it was obviously benefiting in some way from gravity, else it would grow horizontally. It would take the easy route out. And um, the evaporation was all taking place in the canopy. In fact, 98% of all the water that comes through the roots evaporates through the leaves in transpiration. I have no problem with that. And um, the, the flow downwards is uh, in the phloem, um, which is a, a concentrated sap. And the flow upwards um, in the xylem is a dilute sap. Um, so 
I deduced that the evaporation from the leaves, uh, the evaporation of 98% of all the water, its purpose was to concentrate the sap. And because the leaves produce sugars uh, by uh, photosynthesis, then that makes the sap heavier at the top of the tree than at the bottom of the tree. So gravity pulls the dense sap down. And for every action, we mustn't forget that, for every action, there must be a reaction. If you increase the downflow, you're automatically generating a return flow. So in this case, the downflow is under a positive pressure caused by gravity. And if you can imagine that dense flowing sap behaving like a liquid plunger in a syringe, being forced down under a positive pressure. But all of those molecules are connected to other molecules. So if you move those molecules down, they drag on the molecules behind it. And that, that dragging effect, molecular drag, goes right back down the so other side of the, the, uh, the vessels in the xylem, down through the roots and out into the soil. So by causing a downflow, you're actually drawing water into the tree and back up under attention in the xylem. So the trees never had to raise water from the ground to the leaves. That was the mistake. They asked the wrong question. What they should have asked was, how do trees circulate sap? And they have indeed got a circulation just like our own. Um, to test the theory, and I did this many times, I set up a tubular experiment, six millimeter bore tubing, hard nylon plastic tubing, um, which is uh, opaque so you can see through. Um, I filled the tube up initially with just normal tap water. Uh, both open ends were placed into two demijohns, two bottles of water. And um, what we found was that the tension on, in the uh, return flow side was actually causing a gas, gas to cavitate. So I took the gas bubbles out by boiling, boiling the water first. And now that's got degassed water in it. So we have a loop of tubing, which is 24 meters, uh, 48 meters long, the tube is, filled with boiled water with some, uh, 10 to 15 milliliters, 10 to 50 milliliters of colored salt solution is added to the center of the tube. The two open ends are put into two bottles filled with, again, boiled or degassed water and both at uh, ground level. The centre of the tube is then raised up a cliff to 24 metres uh, as an inverted U-tube, um, which incidentally the laws of physics say is not possible. You can't do this. You can't go over 10 metres in a single open-ended tube. Well, the trees don't understand that law, so neither do I. Um, and uh, what we saw was the coloured salt solution started to flow down one side, not a siphon effect, but a... Um, uh, a, a flow and return system so the one bottle starts to overflow and the other bottle goes down which means that journey from the top of the loop of tubing to the container below caused the entire contents of the adjoining tube to be lifted 24 meters without a pump and you did this repeatedly so your yes. results were the same this was observable yes. provable yes where did you bring this information to after you found your conclusions? Well, we had witnesses there from um, um, the Forestry Commission. So there were scientists there and the, the manager from the, uh, actually the general manager from Devon of the Forestry Commission. Um, we had journalists there um, and newspapers there. And everybody agreed with what they'd seen is that that 
um, law in physics had completely been blown out of the water, and um, no one could well no one could pick a hole in it. And it was demonstrated as well at schools and at universities. Um, I wanted to get it um, put in place at Kew Gardens, um, got turned down, said they couldn't do it. Wanted it put in place at the Royal Society, couldn't do it. Uh, went to various universities, wasn't interested. Um, one guy, a guy called Dr. Choi uh, from Exeter University, uh, professor, sorry, um, he looked out of the window after I'd explained to him what I'd discovered, and he says, for the first time in my life, I understand a tree. Wow. Yeah. So there was so the, we, the only one person who actually embraced what you said. I know there have been many, there have been many, but the thing is, Mel, it, it rocks too many boats. You know, there's going to be a lot of egg on a lot of people's faces when the truth of this gets out there. But isn't this what science is all about? To don't, prove don't you yourself, wrong. Mel. Don't yeah. <laughs> I know, I know that the curriculum is is almost set in stone for many people. They don't want to change the status quo. I get that. But isn't science always trying to prove you wrong? And that's what you did. Yes. 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 <laughs> so with all that, you went to, you know. It, institutions and they reviewed your work they couldn't criticize it they couldn't put any holes no. why is it that they don't want to change the textbook so to say um i think there's an old adage that you you can't defeat your opponents you have to wait for them all to die off first. <laughs> yeah max blank yeah that's the guy yeah okay so um, now that you have this how did you transition from this into the inclined bed therapy? Oh, that, that was pretty easy. Um, what we've got here is a non-living physical force that makes things live. So I'm looking at here at the animation of life itself, which is pretty deep. Um, so I thought, well, any column of water that stands above ground level and evaporates most of the water from the top, which sounds awfully like a human being, um, must have some effect on the fluids that are flowing through its circulatory system. So in the case of the body, um, I deduced that the evaporation from the lungs was serving the same purpose as the tree's leaves. So it's concentrating the blood. So as the blood flows into the lungs, we breathe out, we evaporate water. We've all breathed on a mirror. We can see the condensation. And the blood exiting the lungs is therefore denser, has to be. Uh, in fact, I found a paper that verified this on the dog's lung, um, that the blood coming out of the lungs is denser than the blood entering the lungs. So that passes through the heart, and then the heart injects it back into the main artery. Now, if we're standing upright or if we're on an incline, gravity can pull on the denser blood and draw it down to the kidneys. And again, for every action, there's a reaction. If we stimulate an increased downflow, we're going to stimulate an increased return flow. So uh, I got very excited about this and took it to uh, two physiologists, um, and these these people were ve uh, uh, venous surgeons. And um, I had a meeting with um, uh, Dr. Lewis and uh, uh, Dr. Celeste at, at Lewis's home in in Torquay, and uh, I got my experiments out because you can you can make a scaled down version of, of the uh, of the Brixham Cliff experiment. 
so that you can put it on any person's desk and they can see exactly what you're dealing with. Uh, showed the experiment, gave the explanation, and Lewis turned around to me and he said, my God, he said, I thought pure science was dead in the water, and here it is on my kitchen table. Totally fascinated. He said, how, how would... Um, how would you expect the blood pressure to change in the legs if you were walking as opposed to standing still, based on your theory? I said, I would expect to see an increase in, in arterial pressure and an equal decrease in venous return pressure. He says, that's exactly what happens, and nobody's been able to explain why. And he said, uh, I'm just going to leave the, uh, the the talk at the moment. Um, I won't be long. He said, I've got a patient, and the patient is uh, severely swollen with edema. Um, we've tried the diuretics and we've tilted the patient's bed. I'll be back shortly. He came back. He said, I've never seen anything like it. The fluid loss has been astounding. He said, so uh, I'm sold on it. And lots of promises are always made. We're going to help you do this. We're going to help you do that. But nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens, especially in the medical industry, probably because just I'm just thinking of so many... This is such a paradigm shift by reading all your material, because this is new to me. I'm all into alternative health, as everybody knows. And when I think of this, I think of children who die of sudden uh, SIDS, sudden inf infant syndrome, uh, SADS, sudden adult syndrome. How many adults die? They just wake up and they're dead. Do you think this? there's a correlation between sleeping on a flat surface and sits in sats? Without a doubt. Um, I had a meeting with uh, Dr. Shireen Chandler from the Foundation for Sudden Infant Death in London uh, at her home. Again, took my experiments with me, explained why a baby shouldn't be put on a flat flat surface while it's in the uterus. It's never flat, even if the, even if the mother's lying on her back. That baby, because it's buoyant in a buoyant sack, it it's going to be... Yeah, it's yeah, it's always going to be moving. It's always going to be rotating. Um, and um, she turned around to me and she said, my God, she said, I think you've solved it. I said, what do you mean solved? Solved what? Solved how water gets to the top of a tree? No, she said, I think you've solved sudden infant death syndrome. And then there were lots of promises made again. And I guess they realized that their bottom line was on the, on the uh, chopping block. And... Um, but wait, 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 wait. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I can see if you said that all of a sudden you discovered the cure for cancer or heart disease, I can see how they would get very concerned because that's, you know, that's a trillion dollar industry. But we're talking about saving a life of a baby or a, an, a, an infant. Who's I remember, gonna... it, it wasn't me that said it, Mel. It was the, the uh, senior research advisor that said that. Oh, no, I, I know you didn't say that. But why would they not pay attention to this when this could save a life? I mean, this is different than than curtailing the revenue streams of of the big pharma. Yes. Well, if you think about it for a second, you hold the baby in your arms or the mother holds the baby in your arms or the father, the grandfather, the grandmother, and the baby stops crying. Now, when it's in your arms, it's on an incline. As soon as you put the baby down flat, it starts to cry. So you pick the baby up again, and then it's on an incline again, and it stops crying. You, hello, you know, somebody's not listening. And as you said, the animals, the sheep that 
try to find a little mound in and put their heads up of the mound. We could learn so much from, that's why I'm fascinated with zoology also, because you can learn so much from animals and insects and the ant world and so on. But this is so fascinating. So take us again from the trees. Again, I'm unclear as to how you transitioned. How did you, do this? How did you discover the inclined bed being the, the best for people to sleep on? Right. Well, to me, it was just logical. You know, now when I looked at a flat bed, it didn't make any sense at all. So I just tilted my own bed um, and had a guess at the the angle. A bit unscientific at the time. Raised the bed by about four inches. Felt a difference. I thought, well, I, you know, that, 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 that kind of feels different. Uh, the bed feels softer. You know, the pressure points you usually feel, you usually feel like a sack of spuds when you're lying in bed. All of a sudden, the bed felt softer and more comfortable. And I'm thinking, I'm, I must be imagining this because I want it to happen. So I'm starting to question my own my own um, beliefs. Um, but eventually, I raised the bed a little higher, and this all happened within four weeks. And... Um, I was down at the Pocket Bookshop, which is local in Paynton, talking to a guy called Leon Corral, a good friend, and telling him all about this theory and how it fits with trees and how it fits with the human body and why we shouldn't be sleeping on a flat bed, which doesn't make sense anymore. And and a nurse brought it in, a nurse called Stephanie Ness, and she said, I don't normally interrupt conversations. She said, I'm not being rude, but this is fascinating. She said, what I find really interesting is that I work uh, around the, the uh, care homes uh, looking after the elderly patients, and we know that the patients that refuse to lie down in bed for long periods of time, they're the ones that make it to 100 years of age. All the ones that spend a long time in bed don't seem to last very long. So anyway, back to the, uh, the conversation with Leon. Um, then Stephanie Ness said, I wonder if this would work with varicose veins. She said, us nurses, we have to stand on our feet all day long, and when we come back home, we put our feet up. She said, I'm now questioning the logic in putting our feet up. Um, I'll I'll give it a try. So when I got home, I just before this, I'd I'd noticed as well that we had a a boost of energy. We seemed to be... um, We seemed to be somehow fitter and when we get out of bed you don't seem to have that jet lag jet lag feeling in the morning so there was lots of little subtle hints that things are different um but anyway when i when i got back home i said i'm going to keep an eye on your leg joe because my wife's got a varicose vein on the back of her leg it's been there for 16 years and uh after four weeks it completely went flat and i thought well hang on the medical profession are saying raise your legs up, here we've done the opposite, and it's had a long-lasting effect. Now, if you raise the legs up, you'll get some temporary relief, but as soon as you stand back up again, the problem comes back. And the same happens with edema. If you if you uh, raise the legs up, you shift the fluid back to the upper torso. As soon as you stand up, it goes straight back down to the ankles. So they're not actually solving the problem. And the problem is is that the pressures change inside the veins, evidently by the veins being pulled in. Now, if you're pulling veins in, then that means you've applied tension, according to the theory, to the blood. So the blood's being stretched. 
that's having a pulling effect on the venous walls, but you've also lowered the pressure uh, inside the vein as well, so which is also pulling the walls. Now, uh, edema is caused because the pressure inside the veins is greater than the pressure in the surrounding tissue, so the fluid migrates from the blood out through the, the vessel walls into the surrounding tissue. There you've got the, the fluid retention and, and, uh, and lymphedema is very much, very much similar. Um, but now what we're seeing is a reversal of that. So I'm walking around looking at women's legs now for all the wrong reasons. I'm looking, I'm looking for varicose veins. <laughs> yeah. That's um, funny. Yeah. So we catch up with Stephanie Ness. And if and you ever what, see them with a varicose vent, do you approach him and say, hey, by the way, I have a, a solution I give up for doing you? That, that's cool. It's like ambulance chasing. Yeah. It gets the same reaction. I used to do it. I used to try my hardest to help people out. Look, I can help. I met a guy with gangrene once so, uh, outside of a, a supermarket. My wife was shopping. And I saw this great wad of, wad of uh, um, bandage all over this guy's foot. And he looked like something off a cartoon. And uh, I said, whatever's the matter with your foot? And he said, oh, I've got, I've got gangrene. He said, there's nothing I can do. He said, I've, I've had part of my foot amputated. And um, it looks like I'm going to lose a bit more now. Anyway, I talked to, him, talked to him about the bed, and I said, well, you know, it's improving circulation, so it might actually work with, with, with improving the tissue growth and, and circulation, you know, that's causing the, the gangrene. So I got a phone call back from him. I think it was about five or six weeks later. And he said that the, the surgeon's shocked. He said it's the first time he's ever seen a reversal of this sort of tissue damage. So he actually was, listened to you? Yes. Wow. Yes. So and I've had lots and lots and lots and lots of success. success. Um, I like failures as well because I'm, yeah, I'm intrigued by failures. Um, I had a lady with um, a, sp a spinal cord injury because I was working a lot with neurological conditions at the time. And this lady with a spinal cord injury tilted her bed. Unfortunately, the, the foot went blue, one of the one of her feet. And I said, look, you, you, you'll have to stop. Um, I, I don't know what's, what's going on here. She said, well, it, it, it might be that I've got a collapsed vein. Ah, I thought now... If we if we're changing the pressure inside the veins and we're seeing varicose veins go flat, and you've got a collapsed vein, then that's going to close even further, right. and that's going to restrict blood flow. Although it proved the theory, it wasn't very helpful for the lady, but she did find a workaround and, and used the pillars to raise that one affected limb up a little bit. Um, but um, yeah, interesting. Um, What's your take on what's your take on inver inversion tables? I have an inversion table, which I don't use that frequently. When I use it, sometimes I feel dizzy. But you know what I'm referring yeah. to, right? Yes, I do. Yes, um, NASA have spent well. They're, 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 I think they're currently paying seventeen thousand uh, dollars for healthy people to sleep with a head down and feet up, and and what they're doing that for is to uh, imitate what happens to astronauts in space. Because if you take gravity away, and we're talking about gravity here, um, they age 10 times faster than we do here on Earth. They get muscle atrophy. Uh, they get neurological problems. They get psoriasis. They get skin thinning, rapid skin thinning. Um, 
they get um, uh, heart atrophy, uh, skeletal, skeletons start decalcifying, and they develop liver stones, kidney stones, bladder stones as a result of the decalcification, rapid decalcification of the bones. Um, and when they come out of space, they, 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 they can't stand up. But what, you know, how, can they, how can they compare a no-gravity environment to what happens when you are on an inversion table or you're sleeping with your head down when you have 100% gravity? I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense. How can they compare the two things? Well, that's a fair point. But what I found is that if you do sleep head down, and I don't know how they found out, uh, it does bring about the same deterioration as as, uh, as being in space. Really? Really. Yes. So there's no positives, in your opinion? I, I, you know, some people say the inversion tables are good for your vertebrae. It releases pressure. So your take on the inversion table is not positive at all? Well, if you if you want to relieve pressure on the on the spine, now we've just had a we've just had another um, post in the on our Facebook group um, about a guy who's been measuring his height and he's actually gained a half an inch. Um, I'm okay with Imperial with you guys, yeah. So it, if we if we analyse what's happening, and and this happened to me when I was. Uh, in the early stages when we first tilted our bed, the, the, my two lads were placing the book on the heads, marking a, a mark on the wall and, and measuring how much they were growing. And they asked me to do the same. And I said, look, I'm, I'm too old for that now. It's, it's um, you know, I'm past my growth spurt. I'm going to start losing height now. I was wrong. I'd, I'd actually started to regain the height that I'd been losing. And uh, if we think about for a minute, what we're doing here is we're, if if we're on a bed which is inclined, or indeed um, uh, inverted, as you as you've just said, in both cases, we're applying traction to the spine. In the case of the inversion theory or therapy, it's pretty obvious that the, the heavy part of our body is trying to move down, but it's held back. Usually, they they do something with the feet. To, to sort of increase the stretching, um, but if we're on a if we're on an inclined bed as opposed to sleeping flat, then uh, our body's trying to move down the bed, but it's held back by the friction between our our, our mattress and, and our body, and this uh, friction is sufficient to apply tension to the spine. So we're actually stretching the spine every night we go and sleep on an inclined bed. And back problems, serious back problems, um, have been resolved simply by tilting the bed um, without the, 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 the detrimental effects of being upside down. This to me is just, I'm absorbing it all, but I want to understand it. I want to dissect it 100%. I have this obsess obsessive compulsion that I want to understand everything 100% correctly, just like I did with earthing. Yeah, I mentioned earthing before. I used to think this is just bunk. That's impossible. And I saw the benefits immediately. Now, I cannot travel without my earthing pads. I cannot sleep with my earthing pads. And if I do sleep without them, I can feel the difference the next day. So with this, you're sleeping on a five-degree angle, correct? Yes. Now... If you were to sleep sitting down or standing up, just being extreme here for a moment, 
What is the actual best way? Because it seems to me, after reading a lot of your testimonials, that it's almost like we're dying every night for those who are lucky enough to sleep eight hours. Is that they're killing themselves for eight hours every night, are they? Yes, yes. If we're we're sitting down, um, what we're doing is we're doing the opposite to what the inclined bed and the inversion therapy is doing. We're actually compressing the spine. And our pelvis, our heavy pelvis, is pressing down through the soft tissue on our buttocks, say if we're lying on our back, um, towards the mattress, yeah? Um, if we're on an inclined bed, we, we, we're shifting the weight. It's different, completely different. So what is then, give me some, before we, we start giving instructions and how to do this and how to actually position yourself to sleep, give me some testimonials. I know there's plenty of them on your website, but give some of the testimonials that you have received. Oh, it's just, there's too many. There's a, um, well, there's some of the case histories that I personally worked for, worked with, um, was a, a, a guy with Parkinson's disease, advanced stage Parkinson's disease. He wore the Parkinson's mask, so he'd lost his facial features. His concentration span was about a minute, and then he'd, he'd, he'd sort of drift off, and then he'd come back again and have a little bit more of a chat, and then he'd drift off again. His body was severely swollen like a giant water balloon. And um, we tilted his bed, and I got a panicked phone call saying that my husband just does not stop urinating. It's like someone's turned the tap on. And after a week, his clothes literally fell on the floor. He'd lost so much fluid, just like Lewis had shown with his patient in in Torbay Hospital. And um, he started to, uh, well, she turned over in bed, his wife, and uh, woke him up because she looked at him and his face was all relaxed. He'd lost that he'd lost that Parkinson's feature, and she had a conversation with him for the first time in many years. And she was on the phone t- telling me all about this, and he was improving, 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 um, getting around, walking. He'd he was losing the Parkinson's shuffle, um, becoming more mobile. And I was he- hearing all these stories, and I, I just. You know, I just had to go over and, and, and see what was happening for myself. And uh, I knocked on the door, and this guy, who I could barely talk to, um, was standing there. And he said, uh, hi, Andrew, you've come to see my wife. I said, yes. He said, but I've come to see you as well. He says, hang on, I'll go and get her. Now, there's a stair lift by the side of him. He walked up the stairs, shouted his message turned around and come back down the stairs and said, come into the living room. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And then a, 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 about a week later, he started to develop some erratic behavior. He, he was like trying to rip a pillow up and he couldn't stop. And I remember seeing a film uh, called The Sleepers, I think it was, by Oliver Sacks, about people in a catatonic state. And they were using levodopa or L-dopamine. And... I noticed that the, the the erratic behavior in that in that film was exactly the same as what he was he was exhibiting. So I said, I, I wondered if we could sort of try reducing the the medication. And I know you shouldn't say things like that when when you're a mechanical engineer. Yeah, um, right. but, but but she did. I reduced it by fifty percent, and he improved some more. 
and he was going out and walking down the streets and taking uh, he'd go down to the school playing fields to watch his granddaughters playing uh, playing on the school fields and um, he was um, taking an interest in his car which he hadn't drove for many years because of the PD and he managed to get it going and fired it up and drove off in it that's that's Parkinson's but again he started to develop the erratic behaviour again so reduced his medication by another 50% and the erratic behaviour stopped so the medication was not needed now what was happening there what was it because the brain was starting to produce its own natural version of, of L-dopa or dopamine or was it that the body was making better use of the synthetic version I, I really haven't got a an answer for that, but it's one or the other, or both. So that's that's one uh, one personal experience. Another personal experience, and your your uh, listeners are probably going to go, oh yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. What do you take me for a fool? Uh, I get a phone call, and it's um, a lady's asking about a bull terrier. She says, "Could you tell me a little bit about the breed, please?" I said, "What what do you want to know?" She says, well, what would an adult male be like around a severely disabled child? I said, what's the matter with your kid? She said, why do you want to know? I said, oh, I might be able to help. She said, don't be bloody ridiculous. She said, I've, I've rang about the dog. And I said, look, I can't make you listen. She said, well, spit it out then. She was very abrupt with me. So I, I told her all about what had been happening. And by now I was helping people with multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injuries. And the results were absolutely unprecedented. And... um she, uh, she, she, well, she told me that the, that the child had got cerebral palsy. Um, she started crying when I told her all about what I was doing. And her husband come on the phone and told got, he was telling me off, saying I've upset his wife. And I heard her say in the background, look, just listen to what he has to say. So I have to explain it all over again. And uh, anyway, they, they tilted this kid's bed. And uh, prognosis in 1995 was if she ever developed the ability to brush or comb her own hair, please let us know. But don't hold your breath, it's never going to happen. Um, and they'd been, apparently they'd spent a lot of money traveling around the world trying to find something that would, would make her life a little bit better. Um, and she wore calipers daytimes and nighttimes because she'd never walked to the age of 12. She had scoliosis of the spine. And um, gradually, over the course of a few months, I was getting feedback that was incredible, saying that she was getting a little bit stronger and she's been able to turn herself over in bed and then she's been able to pull herself up in bed, which has never happened before. And Yeah, loads and loads and loads of feedback. And um, the icing on the cake came. And I, I forget exactly how long it took. I think it was about eight or nine months, probably longer. Um, the school had rang the parents up and they, they rang me up and said, look, we're off down to see the girl now. I'll leave a name out of it because uh, she she doesn't want any publicity, unfortunately. Sure. Um, and um, she'd got out of a wheelchair and walked at school for Wait, the first what? time in 12 years. Say, say again? She got out of a wheelchair and walked at school. Not only walked on flat ground, but she'd managed to climb a flight of stairs as well. This is someone who has cerebral palsy who was in a wheelchair. Brain damage from birth, 12 years of age, never walked. To some people, may say this is a miracle. No, 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 no. It's repeatable science. No, that's what I'm saying. 
the, the ones who, who, who might not believe that this is real, this is pure science, may say, well, this was a, a miracle. But how long was she using inclined bed therapy before? How long did she do that until I she think, was able I to think, walk? I think I got, I got follow-up follow up, um, progress reports. But I think it was about, I think it was about eight to nine months of avoiding a flatbed was sufficient to, 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 uh, to connect neurons in the brain. No, like I said, I like to understand how what makes things tick. In this case, this this young woman, is it because when you're inclined, your body, how can I put it in words? Basically, it's getting stronger because of the gravity as opposed to being completely flat where your body's completely, in a way, relaxed. But let's say that you were to stay in bed 12 hours a day. I'm pretty sure you're going to be losing muscle mass. You'll be losing bone density and so on. So the opposite is true here. Was she building more bone density and building some muscle by being yes. inclined? Yes. One of the complaints I had from the parents was, and, and they, they actually went along with this, they put the bed flat uh, because they said her leg muscles were looking too masculine. <laughs> but oh. She had no muscles on the legs. She'd never used the legs. And um, they took her in to see this uh, specialist who gave the lousy prognosis. Um, he was a specialist in Wales. And when they walked into his office, she walked in unaided. And he was in shock for 20 minutes. They couldn't get a word out of him. He was a gibbering idiot. Yeah. Yeah. He was, in total, he was in total shock. When he came to his senses, he took her down and had an X-ray on the spine. The scoliosis had corrected itself too. The scoliosis was corrected itself. Yes. I know so many people who have had scoliosis and have to go through surgery. I know people who have children with cerebral palsy. And I hate to say that, but sometimes I mention to them, to them certain things I learn, like one person with cancer. And I, and I hate to say this here because the FDA may take me, but I have to say nothing of what you're hearing here today, folks, is... This is not considered medical advice. I have to just issue that disclaimer. But I told friends of mine about certain alternative practices, and the majority of them just roll their eyes. And I've said it before, a lot of my friends are medical doctors. And when I have these conversations with them, they say to me, well, I've been, I've been in medical school for so many years, and what's your expertise? You know, things like that. And I just decided... I'm going to talk about this during my radio program. If they want to listen to me in silence and, you know, anonymously, go ahead. But I no longer have these conversations with the public, with friends, with... Do you understand where I'm coming from? I do indeed, yes. Yes. Try to have this yes. conversation at a social gathering and you see how many people will roll their eyes at you. Yes. Only yes. to then find out that somebody that they know tried it And all of a sudden, you become a prophet. But in the meantime, you're just the crazy uncle who's talking gibberish and nonsense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Now, this woman, why doesn't she want to come, come out to the public and, ex and explain really what happened? I really don't know. I found, I found her on Facebook. And um, she, she eventually admitted that she was the girl that I helped. And then she unfriended me. She I unfriended just, you? Yeah, I was just lost for words. You know, I, I remember asking, 
because um, she's she's done some incredible walks now. She's you know she's done, she lives in a flat on her own, so she's she's capable of looking after herself. You know that that's that that is just well. Anyway, but wait a second. I I have to give credit where credit is due. If you were the one responsible for her 180 degree turn, do you think she was probably threatened not to have links with you or talk to you? Yes. Yes. You think that's what happened or you know that's what happened? I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So basically they're letting her enjoy her life as long as she keeps quiet. Just like some people who say I've had a a type of hepatitis that's incurable, all of a sudden they're cured, and what they're asked, so how do you cure yourself? Oh, God did it. But they can yeah, never well, say why and how they did it. What, what was, was she just being protected away from press? You know, were, were the parents worried about the, the publicity that she would get and that she'd never have a decent life again? But imagine how many other people would well, learn for, of this... Funnily enough, I actually wrote to her and, and to her parents um, and asked if they could help by helping me to convince two members of my family that got kids with cerebral palsy. They never, that was the end of the relationship, really. They never helped. What do people have to lose? Let's say you have somebody with cerebral palsy and a, a parent and you present this to them. What could they possibly lose? I understand if it's a... If it's a medicine or a vaccine that's uh, uh, still untested, I get that. But here, what could they possibly lose? Yeah. Well, you know, you could. You could. You, it's just madness. It's, it's, it's absolutely insanity. You know, I, I've lost, I'm lost for words. I've, I've come across this so many times, and you've tried to help, and. Nothing. It's just. I have a doctor, a doctor as well. Funnily enough, um, this is another interesting story. She's got multiple sclerosis, and she's contacted me because of an article in the Daily Mail. Um, that was massive. That Daily Mail. That was. This was long before I, I got involved with the internet, really. And um, this doctor said, "Look, if this helps helps with me, helps me get back to work, then I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you as much as I can." She got back to work with with MS, and she wouldn't help me. For Why? some reason, I predi I was predicting in my mind the latter part of your statement. Yeah, yeah. So she was able to go back to work with MS. Yes. Was she able to reverse the MS? Yes. She was able to reverse the MS, and now she's fully functional. We're not talking here about, we talked about blood circulation, but we mm -hmm. have the lymphatic circulation and the glymphatic circulation, which is a new discovery. Right. Make make uh, the differentiation there because I read the glymphatic at the beginning of the program and I'm pretty sure a bunch of people who are going to write to me say, Mel, you meant lymphatic. But those are two different systems. The glymphatic yeah, goes well, no, to the no, brain, no, no. right? It's, it's, no, no, no. It's the same system. It's just that it's been argued for many years that the brain didn't have a lymphatic system. Uh -huh. And now they've discovered that, in fact, it did have a lymphatic system. And back in the 18th century, it was actually modelled, and they just ignored this guy. I think it was I think it was the late 18th century that he actually did some perfect models showing the lymphatic system in the brain, and they they, they ridiculed the guy. 
and and it turns out that he did a perfect model of it. So uh, if you think about it logically, there's, there has to be a drainage. You can't have fluid flowing into the brain within no way of it getting out. Right. Imagine all the impurities. I mean, what do a clean cleans? Yeah. Um, so anyway, if you think about the circulation in the lymphatic system, there's no heart at play there. So how does it circulate, Mel? Gravity. The, heart, the heart's not involved. What's driving the fluids? All right, that's too easy. What about the cerebrospinal fluid circulation? What's driving that? Again, there's no heart involved. So again, so I, go back, I, go, I go back to the, for a moment, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I go back to the inversion table. So when you're completely facing down with the feet up, that is not healthy in your opinion? No. So does this mean that the best way to sleep would be standing up? No, 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 no. If we're standing up, um, first of all, have you ever seen these funny videos where the uh, the groom is waiting for the, 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 the wedding ceremony to be completed and they <laughs> yes. call over? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's because they stand in motionless. Now, when you're standing motionless, you're compressing all of the vessels at the bottom of your feet. So you're, in fact, pinching off your circulation. And that's where God will fall over in, on duty as well. So the object is, is, is to rock your weight from side to side to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So um, I've lost my train of thought. I, I was just being extreme when saying standing up because you see oh, the... Oh, standing up. Okay. Yeah. Now, if we're standing up, first of all, you've got the problem with all the pressures, the pressures on your joints, the pressures on the bottom of your feet. Uh, and the pressure on all of those discs in your spine. So they're never getting the chance to be um, decompressed to allow the uh, the gelatine to reform and um, the cushions to settle down. Um, whereas when you're on an inclined bed and you're sleeping inclined, you're stretching the spine, you're relaxing all of those joints, and you're allowing the circulation to get in there and do the repairs. So there's a, there's a huge difference between trying to sleep standing up and trying to sleep on an inclined bed. But then you say, well, you've got these beds, these hospital beds, where they raise the, the head end of the right. bed, and you've got your legs either raised slightly or your knees raised slightly and your legs flat or your legs flat. Uh, and, and again, that's the same as standing. That is compressing the spine and it's compressing the soft tissue below your pelvis. Uh, which leads to pressure sores in the elderly patients where the skin's thinned out. Um, huge problems with with, um, with pressure sores in, in, in the hospitals. And um, again, huge, huge difference because you're actually sitting. And uh, I think it's Joan, Joan Vernikos, who's the former head of life sciences at NASA. And she's wrote a book called Sitting Kills. And um, she's explaining why it's important to stand up and move around and do that every 20 minutes rather than sitting in one position um, because, that again, you're compressing all of the vessels, you're compressing the soft tissue, you're compressing the muscle, your pelvis is trying to push down through your skin. Um, yeah, not good at all. But when you sleep on the incline, completely different, different experience. Is sitting worse than laying flat? 
I would say that laying flat is worse, and I'll back that up with some significant substance. Um, in the uh, the Jewish code of ethics, the ancient Jewish code of ethics, um, I forget the rabbi's name, very very uh, uh, famous guy. He he says um, it it is it is forbidden to remove the pillows from a patient that is dying to speed up that patient's demise. So in other words, if you lay that patient flat, you're accelerating its death, his death or her death. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting you say that because if I ever, if I don't have a pillow, I can't sleep. And yes. if I have two pillows, I sleep better. Yes. On the inclined bed, I would recommend trying one pillow. Right, because you're already inclined. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have another segment to discuss and I'm going to drill deeper, folks. You know me. I want to understand this completely. I want to know exactly how to position yourself on the bed to don't answer right now. You'll answer on the other way on the other side, Andrew. But do we sleep on our side? Do we sleep on our stomach, on our backs? What is the best position? The maladies. I have a list here of the testimonials that you've received. Let me just read a few of the titles. Arthritis. Everything related to arthritis, bladder control, cellulite. A lot of women pay thousands of dollars to take care of cellulite, bumps, depression, mood swings, emotion, diabetes, eyesight, glaucoma. And I've noticed this sometimes. If I sleep, I don't sleep that off, that, that much, maybe six hours. But if I ever sleep more than seven hours, eight hours, for some reason in the morning, I have like blurry vision. Sometimes I have acid reflux and sleep apnea. All those things happen if I sleep too much. Then we have here fibromyalgia. That seems to be like a new term. We haven't heard of that 20 years ago. Gout. Isn't that uric acid accumulation? We'll discuss that. Headaches, migraine, multiple sclerosis, mobility. I can go on and on. Spinal cord injury. And I can go on and on and on. When we come back, we'll tell you exactly what to do what to buy, and what you could expect. How can people learn more about inclined bed therapy and learn more about your work, Andrew, Andrew Fletcher? How can they learn more? On the website, you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you visit inclinedbedtherapy.com um, and look up the frequently asked questions, you'll find a table on there to help you determine the correct height to raise your bed. Um, there's plenty of testimonials there to... Uh, um, free to research and the theory is there about the, the circulation of sap in trees uh, there are radio uh, and uh, videos of the interviews that I've done over the years um, some are very interesting um, you know there's, there's, pl there's plenty there for people to get the teeth into and I do my best to maintain the website as best I can um, with the limited resources I have so apologies if it's not glowing high-tech spec but it does the job and um, yeah there's a forum uh, we have a, by the same name inclined bed therapy you can contact us on Facebook so there's some lovely people on there um, some people that have been on their inclined bed for many years and some people that are like yourselves probably just dipping the toes in the water so uh, yeah there's plenty of ways to to get involved I'm dipping my toes in the water, but pretty soon I'll be immersed into this because I'm reading more and more about it, and it makes so much sense, especially 
after seeing that Egyptian bed 2500 BC and knowing that they probably knew about this and our medical industry and I can see why folks I can see why this is kept from you same thing with earthing or magnesium or things that are very inexpensive for you to try that could have an immediate positive effect on your life just think about it if it's going to jeopardize their revenue stream or somebody's medical license of course and this is why you we are all privileged to have people like andrew fletcher who's doing this in a selfless manner to help humanity but folks don't go anywhere we have one more hour with inclined bed therapy a new concept for me and i'm sure you're all gonna enjoy it this is mel fabregas and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first part of this very important veritas interview to listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.